Well, I wonder if we had to answer the question, which verse in the Bible does the devil hate the most? I wonder what your answer would be. Of course, the devil hates. Now, the devil knows the Bible. The devil is aware of the Bible. We know that in Jesus' temptation, the devil was able to quote from the Bible. Yes, it was a slanted quote, and he did the same, didn't he, at the beginning of creation. He was able to quote and question what God had said. Well, I wonder if we could answer that question, whether it might be the words that we read with regards to justification by faith. How are we saved? We are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. We read those words, didn't we, in Galatians chapter 2. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. And I think if we understand something of those words, there will be a sort of answering hallelujah in our hearts. What is the gospel? Good news? Good spell? Good message? We call ourselves evangelicals because we believe the gospel. We believe the the euangelion. That is where the word evangelical comes from. It is the the word that means uh, the message, the, the joyous tidings, the, the joyous news. It comes from actually from a, a military route and uh, the idea is that uh, where there was a, a battle being fought, people back home, wives, children, those who were non-combatants would be waiting anxiously. Their whole future would depend on the message that came from the battlefield. All their, their life, their livelihoods, their property, Uh, Everything depended on what was going to happen on that battlefield. And then eventually a runner would come. And that runner would be a man with a a message, perhaps the fastest runner in in the country. And he would run with a message and it's good news. It's, it's, it's euangelion, it's, it's the gospel, it's, it's, it's the message that, uh, that there is victory. We're safe, we're saved. And this victory then depends, doesn't it, on three great events. Paul spells them out for us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. But what do these things mean for us? That is, that is if you like, the, the, the briefest summary, isn't it, of the, of the gospel. Jesus Christ has died Jesus Christ has been buried in the grave. He's truly dead. He's truly buried. 
But Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. What does it mean? What does that mean for us? How do these truths affect us? What difference does it make? And what are we supposed to do about it? Well, I believe that's what these words communicate to us that I want to focus on this morning. Just a bit of background, first of all. Paul's interpretation of these great historical events is an interpretation that is direct from God. And this interpretation was attacked from the beginning. It's astonishing, isn't it, how quickly the truth of justification by faith was lost from the early church. That is perhaps one of the most surprising and shocking things. And we have that long period of time where this this truth was, was all but obscured from the church. And then we have the glorious reformation where this truth in all its glory and all its light was, was rediscovered again. It was, it was born out in Luther's experience. Others I know, but uh, he had uh, by far the biggest influence on the Reformation. And it's a truth that is under attack. Luther called it, didn't he, the, the article of a standing or falling church. The article of a standing or falling church. You can tell whether a church is standing by its response to this truth. Do you believe in justification by faith in Jesus Christ or not? Is this at the center of what you teach and the center of what you hold fast? And I would say it's also the article of a standing or falling Christian. If this isn't at the center of our day-by-day living, what do you do? Let me ask you this question. What do you do when you are aware of fresh guilt on your conscience? What do you say in your heart? What do you say in your mind? What goes on when you're aware of fresh guilt? I've said something that wasn't true. I've said something that was really horribly unkind. And I'm aware that my conscience is convicting me. There is this inner turmoil in my heart and in my mind that is making it clear that I'm, I'm just not at peace with myself even, let alone with God. What do you do in that situation? You go back to this truth. Lord, you turn to God. You say, Lord, I've fallen again. I've I've fallen into the the same old sin again. But there is hope. There is salvation. There is somebody. And I'm looking to the one who has given himself for my sins. And Lord, will you forgive? And for, for the sake of what Jesus has done, will you forgive and blot out all of that sin and guilt and make me to know that I'm forgiven? Through what he has done. It's this truth, isn't it? Well, as I said, it comes under attack. And that's what's happening here in this letter to the Galatians. In the Galatian churches, there were those who were coming and they had crept into the church. And they were teaching something that undermined this truth that we're justified by faith in Jesus Christ alone. There had been this wonderful sense of freedom and liberty as Paul preached about the the, the truth of justification by faith 
There there had been Jews who had been bound up with all of their law-keeping, and they felt this wonderful release, this wonderful sense of freedom, that it's not by works. My salvation doesn't depend on what I do, on me achieving a certain standard. My salvation depends entirely, completely, solely on Jesus Christ and what he has done and the work that he has finished. And there was this wonderful release and a sense of freedom and joy and peace. And that was being enjoyed then in Antioch and in the other churches in Galatia. But then the Judaizers had come and there was trouble. What had happened before is that there had been this clear, before the gospel came, there had been this clear distinction between Jews and Gentiles. You remember the Jews have these laws of ritual purity and they are afraid of contamination by Gentiles. It's still true to this day, isn't it? There is still a remnant of this to this day. Uh, Jews will have struggle with with having a meal at your house. You invite a Jew to dinner and, and there'll be all kinds of problems. And this caused a distinction between Jews and Gentiles. But when the gospel came, all of that was swept away. And Jews and Gentiles were, were able to, to have communion together. They were able to eat together. They were to be able to be in one church. Though they were, the, the, the divide was so uh, large, yet they'd been joined together in the gospel. But when these false teachers arrived, that uh, was in danger. That had been endangered. And Peter, of all people, had been brought to go go along with it. And even Barnabas, they were going back to these old divisions, this separation between the Jews and the Gentiles. They were living, going back to the old way of behaving, the, the distinctions. And Paul sees this as extremely serious. You can't read Galatians can you without realizing how seriously Paul takes this change these false teachers were saying you must be circumcised you must keep these rules of of religious purity and Paul sees this as a complete denial of the truth of the gospel he call he sees it as a a subtle undermining of the very foundation of Christian faith And he sees his calling to to smash it to smithereens. There's something wonderfully heartening, isn't there, about the way Paul approaches it. It's a perversion of the gospel and he's all out. He goes in all guns blazing. He wants to completely destroy it. He wants to drive it out of the church forever. And it's this split between a religion of human effort and a religion that depends upon God's grace. And he sees them as two totally distinct religions. Well, I want to look at then under two headings this morning uh, as this truth is divided up. We're justified and we're justified by faith. So I want to look at what it is to be justified and then the means by which we are justified second by faith. 
I love the story in the Old Testament of David and Goliath. It's a grand story, isn't it? It's a grand account of what happened. David, with his sling and his stones, and Goliath deriding him, belittling him, saying he's going to, he's going to feed him. But the important thing is that this was a representative event, wasn't it? The future of the two armies depended on what happened between these two individuals. And it's a wonderful illustration of the gospel. Everything depends on the interaction between Jesus Christ and the devil. Who is the winner? Who is victorious? And David and Goliath is a little, little Old Testament picture of this great battle, isn't it? And the fate of the universe... The fate of countless millions of human beings depends on the outcome. And what happens as a result? Well, we are justified. As a result of Christ's work on the cross, sinners can be justified. We have two different words in our English language that are used to try and explain this word justified. We talk, don't we, about somebody who is righteous or just, but we don't use the word righteousify. We're righteousified by faith, although that's really what it means. We use the term justified. The, the two words are used to express that same meaning. And the first thing I want to say about justification is that it's the action of God. It's the action of God. God justifies. It's not like a, a local justice of the peace who justifies. It's not your local magistrate who justifies. It's not even the, the crown court. It's not even the, the high court. It's not even the, the European court of human rights. It goes right to the very top, doesn't it? It goes right to the, the final court, the final decision. And it's the decision of God. And it's the decision that affects our eternal future. And it's God announcing his, his final decision, as it were, early. Yes, it's true that on the day of judgment, there will be a final verdict about each one of our lives, won't there? We all have to face that. We must all go before the judgment seat of Christ. But what is the, the verdict? Well, for those who are justified, it's as if that verdict has already been announced. It's the action of God in the highest and final court of the universe. It's God's last word on the matter. And it's what a judge does when he finds no cause of guilt. We have this uh, phrase, don't we? You're either guilty or you're not guilty. Uh, and it always seems to me as though that uh, not guilty isn't, isn't definite enough. Uh, and in uh, the Bible language, it's more definite than not guilty. It is, it is to be pronounced before the court as being uh, someone against whom no charges can be brought successfully. 
And this is the sort of language that it is that it refers to. It's a court word. It's a legal term. And it's what a judge does when he finds no cause of guilt. It's the judge's declaration. After all the evidence has been brought, after all the evidence has been sifted through, it's his final verdict. This is what will decide the destiny of this person. Justified. That's God's verdict. Justified. And, astonishingly, it is the action of God proclaiming a verdict of justified on a mass of people, a mass of people who individually are actually guilty. That's astonishing, isn't it? Each one of them individually, when you look at it objectively, are failures. They are each one of them guilty. And yet God, who is true, a God who who cannot lie, looks at them knowing the whole truth. This isn't a a mistake. It's it's not somebody where the the truth hasn't been found out. It's all been covered over. Uh, It's not where a situation where the judge has been deceived by a false witness. This is is God who, who, who cannot be deceived, a God who knows all things, who knows the whole picture, who knows all the ins and outs of every single situation. And he's looking at this person who is actually a sinner, and who is actually guilty of countless failures to keep God's law. And God can declare that this person before him is holy and completely and totally and forever righteous. We say, well, there's got to be something wrong there. That can't possibly be right. How can God say something that isn't true? How can God justify the guilty? How can God change the status of one who is truly a criminal with regards to God's law to one who is holy and good? How can God justify the guilty? Human judges can't do this, can they? In fact, it's something that God prohibits. If you look in the book of Deuteronomy, In chapter 25, it's very clear. Deuteronomy 25. If there is a dispute between men and they come to court, that the judges may judge them, and they justify the righteous and condemn the wicked, then it shall be, if the wicked man deserves to be beaten, that the judge will cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence, and so on, according to his guilt. Judges are to judge righteously. They are to justify the righteous and they are to condemn the wicked. That's how it should be. Well, how is it that God is able to do something different from that then? God makes to be true what he declares to be true. That's how it happens. If you look in Romans chapter 5 and verse 19. 
And it goes back to what happened right at the beginning of our family's history, doesn't it? Why are you and I sinners? Well, it goes all the way back. We're sinners because mother and father were sinners. And they're sinners because grandfather and grandmother were sinners. And they're sinners because their parents were sinners. And so it goes back all the way back through the human family to the very first pair, Adam and Eve. And we're all sinners because they're sinners. And that's where it started and that's where the Bible starts, isn't it? Very near the beginning of the Bible. Because it's so significant. And through Adam's sin, the whole race becomes a race of sinners. And we're all in Adam. We all belong with Adam, don't we? We're all in sharing in the guilt of Adam. We're all in that guilty family. And we all express what we are by nature, day by day. Well, how does it work then? How can God declare the guilty to be righteous? Well, as by, this is Romans chapter 5 and verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. So also, by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. And that's the point, isn't it? As we were joined to Adam and we shared all the awful consequences of his sin, In exactly the same way we're taken out of Adam and we're joined to a new Adam, the second Adam. We're joined to Jesus Christ and we share in all the consequences of his perfect righteousness, his perfect life. The fact that he conquered, the fact that he didn't fail. Where the first Adam failed, he didn't. And so God is actually declaring what is true because we become part and we become one with Jesus Christ. We're joined to Jesus Christ. And as we are joined to Jesus Christ, all that is true of him becomes true of us. There's a free gift of righteousness. Verse 17 of Romans chapter 5. Who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. It's given. It's a free gift. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, to receive a valuable gift. And it's freely given. Thankfully, there are no rules, are there, that stop people giving gifts. If I have money in the bank... I'm allowed to do what I like with that money. I'm allowed to give it to whomsoever I choose. And there's nothing that the law can do to stop me. And I can give as much as I like to whoever I like. It's mine and I can transfer the ownership to somebody else. Or I can share it with them. And righteousness is like that. And it pleases God to share that righteousness that is, that is won by Jesus Christ with a countless multitude of other human beings. And God's righteousness declares that this is perfectly fair. There is nothing in the perfectly just and holy heart of God that shrinks from doing this, is there? God's happy with it. That's what we sung about in that hymn, isn't it? 
God's divine justice. When he looks at this arrangement, he finds it totally satisfying, completely in agreement with his holy justice. God is happy, completely, totally happy with this arrangement. One man's righteousness, one man's perfect obedience is enough to cover a multitude of sinners. We're justified through what Jesus Christ did. His perfect life of righteousness was worked out, not just for himself. And you can see that, can't you? Because he he gave it up. The astonishing thing, isn't it? The, The one man who didn't deserve to die was the one man who actually did die. And I think that there, there is something that is tremendously against what normally happens, happening at the cross, isn't there? Death by divine power is being joined to a life of perfect righteousness. Death is coming to, uh, to be where death doesn't belong. And it, it seems to me that it requires the, the almighty power of God to bring it there. And he who did not deserve to die, he who deserved eternal life, that's the truth of of Jesus' life, isn't it? It was a life that in every possible way pleased God. It was a life that every moment was a delight to God's eyes. This is my beloved son in whom I am thoroughly delighted. Well pleased isn't good enough. Thoroughly delighted. This is a life that that I can look upon and gaze upon and say, I'm totally happy. And it's through that righteousness that sinners are made righteous. God still remains just and fair when he declares an ungodly person Righteous, because that ungodly person by faith is joined to Jesus Christ. The obedience of Jesus is put to their account. The righteousness of God is given to them. The full penalty for all of their sins is paid. It's not done these days, is it, so much, where you have a stamp. And uh, on, on an invoice, uh, a stamp is put on the invoice and it says paid in full. And there's nothing left to be paid then, is there? You can, the creditors come knocking and say, look, uh, you, you've got a, you've got a, there's an invoice here. And it says that you owe a certain amount of money. And you get out the invoice that you've been given and there on the invoice is stamped paid in full. And it's their stamp. And so they've got not a leg to stand on, have they? It's been paid. And that's what I love about that top lady hymn. Payment God cannot twice demand. Jesus paid. For for all his people, he's paid the price. And he's paid it in full. Payment God cannot twice demand. It's the other way around, isn't it? God cannot but... Declare them righteous, those who are joined to Jesus Christ. Because that is actually what is true with regards to them. 
Jesus has fulfilled all the positive demands of the law. And Jesus has taken the full penalty of what the law required into himself. It's a wonderful truth. So secondly, how can it be true of us? How can it be true of us? We are justified not by our birth. It's not what it says, is it? You're not justified by your surname. You're not justified by the country where you were born. You're not justified by the sort of life that you live. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that you are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Perhaps I can illustrate this. I was going to show the children a picture. Perhaps I'll show it to you instead. This is my children's talk. I'm sure you won't mind me including it in my sermon. Anybody know where that is? Anybody know what country that is? Let me show you that one. You see that one? It's Berlin. Yeah, it's Berlin. And of course, after the Second World War, Berlin was divided. East Berlin, West Berlin. Of course, there was East Germany and West Germany. The country was divided. And that, that picture shows the dividing line. It's astonishing, isn't it? Right through the middle of a great city, there was that dividing line. And that corridor was called the Corridor of Death. And there were people who wanted to get from East Berlin to West Berlin. There were people who wanted to get from from East Germany to West Germany. Yes, there were people who wanted to go the other way, but not so many. And what happened to them? Well, if they were seen on that strip of land, that narrow corridor of land, if they were seen on there, it was called the Death Zone. And they would be shot. And they would be just left to die there. That's why it got its name. And so treading onto that strip of land, that narrow corridor of land, you're under a sentence of death. All the way across. Every step. And they made it as difficult as possible with barbed wire and obstacles and mines and... uh, microphones to hear and then they'd have the uh, the watchtowers with the soldiers with machine guns and death was just ready to envelop you every step of the way you know that's like us isn't it in our lives that's a picture of what a sinner is we're in the death zone the wages of sin is death and and, and we're in a situation where death can swallow us up at any moment that's the reality of sin isn't it Every step, every day, we're in the death zone. But what when you get to the wall, the other side? And there were people who did get to the wall on the other side, weren't there? And they managed to scramble up the wall and they managed to, to get over the top onto the other side. Then what? Well, as far as the East Germans were concerned, they didn't exist. They're in a different country. The the rules were, were totally different. They were in a totally different nation. They were in a totally different legislative system. They escaped 
completely and totally from that sentence of death. As far as the East Germans were concerned, they didn't exist anymore. All those rules that meant death, they were gone. Just because they'd got over the war on the other side. And that's the picture of faith, isn't it? Faith takes us from being in Adam to being in Christ. And it's even more spectacularly different than being in the old East Germany and going into the West Germany. So have you died to that old regime of sin and death? Is that life lived under the sentence of death gone? Paul uses this picture, doesn't he, in in the epistle to the Romans. I've died to sin. That life, it's over. As far as that whole world is concerned, I no longer live there. Have you died? Let me ask you this. Have you had any kind of struggle with the reality of God's law and the importance of it? I'm not talking about the the law of the land. I'm talking about God's law. The law of the land changes. One day something is right. The next day it's wrong and vice versa. But God's law never changes. God's law is stamped indelibly into our being we're never ever going to be free from God's law in the eternal ages to come every single human being who ever existed is going to know the truth the full truth of God's law it's eternal because it's an expression of the character of God which will never ever change And that is what we are born into. That is what we are as human beings. We we live and move and breathe in that atmosphere of God's law. And we're never ever going to escape it, no matter how hard we try. It's true that people can cauterize their own consciences. But conscience is a funny thing, isn't it? And it has this ability to spring back to life again. Do you notice that in uh, Joseph's family? They'd forgotten about Joseph, hadn't they? The, the, the sin that they'd committed with Joseph, it was, it was years and years ago. They'd all forgotten all about it. And suddenly they're in difficulties in Egypt and it all comes springing back into their minds, doesn't it? This has happened because of what we did all those years ago that we'd all forgotten about. They were still under... God's law they were still aware of the reality of God's righteous law and has that happened with us we talk about the conviction of sin and the tragedy is that there's so very very little of it these days isn't there we we need to pray that God will enable preachers to so speak that that people will come under the conviction of sin That's what happens when when revival happens. The awareness, it's like uh, awakening, isn't it? They become aware of their surroundings. They become aware of the reality that they're in. And people are awakened to the reality of their guilt and their sin before God. And, And it's an awful experience. I wouldn't wish it in that sense upon anybody except that it's the way to salvation. Because it's only when we realize that we are guilty and what the the meaning of that is 
before God that we will want to find if there's any way of escape. Have we died to the idea that we can live a life that will be good enough? Can I ask you that question? Have you died to the idea that you can live a life that's good enough for God? Has that hope finally died in your heart? Has God made you look at yourself and despair? Has God persuaded you that your own efforts will never make you worthy of heaven? Because it's at that point that the good news is good news, isn't it? The news that Jesus Christ comes to do it all for you. That Jesus Christ is offered to you freely. That you have the right to take hold of him and all of the salvation that is in him. You can reach out to him and he is offered to you freely and you can take hold of him. And all that he has becomes yours. And all the guilt and sin that you had becomes his and is dealt with forever. That's what I call crossing over the wall. You've entered into a new, a new world, a new country, where you delight in the worthiness of Jesus Christ. Meat and drink to your soul. You delight in the fact that he died. He was dead. He was buried. And that's what sin did. But it didn't stay there, did it? it that wasn't the end story. He rose from the dead because his resurrection is God's verdict on what has happened to our sins, that they are, they are finished, they are gone. That's what the resurrection says, isn't it? That Christ's work works. That all that he took to the cross has been dealt with. And if you trust in him, then your sin and my sin is gone. As far as God is concerned. And so he is right to declare us righteous before him. Do you delight in his resurrection? Do you delight in his life? That he has that power of an endless life? Do you delight that you live in his country? Oh, I know that we're not voting, are we? Jesus isn't on the, on the list of people, candidates, that you can vote for this week. But can I ask you this? If he was, would you vote for him? Do you want him to be your king forever? Do you want to live in his kingdom, under his lordship, under his sovereign rule? Do you come to him with empty hands and trust in his life, in who he is as the saviour of sinners? Are you satisfied? That he is the friend of sinners. God doesn't justify us because we have strong faith. The smallest flicker of living faith is what justifies. We are justified before God by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen.